Australia is expected to significantly drop the number of migrants it allows into the country due to the pressure it's putting on housing and infrastructure. In fact, reports there this morning suggest it could be a halving of the number. Now, in the last year, Australia's net migration gain has been over 500,000. Now, here in New Zealand, net migration, uh, the gain was almost 120,000. That is actually a rate higher per capita than that of Australia. Now, increases in housing stocks haven't kept up with the increases in uh, immigrants. So how will New Zealand cope with the infrastructure challenges of high uh, migration? The Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, Corin. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Good to talk to you. So the issue of immigration, and I think we need to put a proviso on this, that we're not talking about anti-immigration here. What we're talking about is a sustainable level that the infrastructure in a country can deal with. Australia is, is, is taking steps, it looks like, today. They'll announce them later today to, well, the Sydney Morning Herald saying they're going to halve their number because of those concerns. Do you share those concerns given New Zealand's high net migration rate as well? Well, look, I mean, really, to be honest, we're inheriting a system that's been a complete hash. I mean, the first part was that New Zealand's immigration system you know, closed New Zealand off to all immigration for two years at a time when employers were desperately looking for workers. And then Labor opened the floodgates just as the economy was starting to slow. So we're sort of caught in between uh, that piece of it. But you are right. We've got a net migration of 118,000 people. And ultimately, you know, that doesn't feel sustainable for New Zealand at all. Um, and we also need to work much harder at actually getting people off welfare and into work. So what do we do about that? Yes, I mean, if that level was, I mean, everyone sort of expected that spike to come off, but it's not showing those signs that it is. What do we do about that? Because your coalition agreement, for example, has a number of measures which would potentially liberalise immigration even further. Well, what we've got to make sure is that, um, and Erica Stanford's you know, getting ahead around it in the last 10 days, but to make sure that we're working with Immigration New Zealand to make sure that there is audits and checks in place, um, that it's not just carte blanche and that it isn't just uh, keep opening the floodgates and letting anyone and everyone into the country, that it is actually linked around skills and where we have real skill shortages. Um, but as I said also, we have to do a much better job. When we're in you know, net migration of 118,000, but at the same time 60,000 more Kiwis on unemployment benefit and on welfare uh, isn't a good outcome either at a time when there are job vacancies to fill. So you know, we've got to work both sides of that equation. Do you have concerns, and the Reserve Bank raised this last week, it said quite explicitly that immigration was starting to put upward pressure on rents. So it, it, are you worried about that? I mean, you're, trying to, you're coming with a whole lot of policies to try and tame rents, yet you've got migration pushing it the other way. Yeah, well, look, I mean, that, that's what we'll, Erica will be working through. But where we are is essentially, you know, with the two-year closing of the border, um, we had a, a massive challenge around a catch-up and a, and a real spike in immigration that was necessary in order to fill some of those job shortages. But uh, then it was really complete and utter open floodgates. And that's what we've now got to go back through and actually make sure that any immigration is linked very strongly to the economic agenda of New Zealand so that, and the shortages. So you are signalling a review there that there will be the potential for tightening things up. I mean, I don't, I'm turning the tap off the wrong language, but you know, you're saying that we can't keep going at these levels if they were to continue. Well, the trick with immigration is to make sure that it's linked very strongly towards uh, our economic agenda and where we have worker shortages and that that has to be job number one so that any immigration is linked very strongly to our economic um, program. And the second bit is actually making sure that we can you know, digest and manage the infrastructure that's needed to support that growth. 
I think what you've seen in Australia is a plan that was originally to have you know three quarters of a million people arrive in less than two years. Uh, and so I understand why they are, are, are pulling back. Uh, we also are watching and monitoring very closely that, say, look, 118,000 migration is very, very high for New Zealand. It's the highest it's been. Uh, we understand that there is a little bit of catch-up that's been needed to, to fill some shortages that have existed since the lockdown periods. Uh, but having said all of that, we expect that to be slowing month on month and actually making sure it's linked very strongly to the job shortages. That we Last question, do we have a target? I mean, is it, is it, we were sort of tracking around the fifty to 60,000, which is still a healthy number, but prior to COVID, is that where you would like to see things return? Well, again, it's actually very hard for any government to, to lay up a number, a hard and fast number. Um, yeah, what we've got to do is make sure that any, any migration is linked very strongly to those worker shortages that we have. We can't always control Kiwis returning or Aussies, um, you know, um, but what we've got to do is make sure that we are getting the settings right. They've gone from being way too restrictive to being way too loose, and, and we've got to find that balance, um, as, and that's the work that Eric mm. will get into in the next few months. Okay, a couple of quick questions. Uh, Gaza, there have mm. been reports of an Israeli New Zealand soldier that may have been killed. Have you had any update on that? Uh, I'm aware of those reports as well, and I know that MFAT is now trying to um, ascertain the details around that. Until they do, I haven't got any more that I can say about it. Okay. Does New Zealand support the US veto of a call for a ceasefire at the Security Council? No, we co-sponsored that uh, resolution that was taken to the Security Council and sadly rejected by the Security Council over the weekend. Um, as we've said before, you know, we really want to see um, immediately New Zealand, you know, a ceasefire emerge in, in, in the Middle East. But there are some real challenges around it. And, you know, we need to see the reinstatement of those humanitarian truces and pauses because that's a good, logical next step in order to getting ourselves to a sustainable ceasefire. Sorry, sorry just to interrupt. Uh, did, did you say we co-sponsored that US uh, veto? I'm sorry, I'm not quite clear what that means. No, not the veto. There's a resolution that was put to the Security yes. Council. And the Security Council, uh, the US vetoed it in the Security Council. But essentially that, that was a... Um, a statement from um, other other UN countries, which we were supportive of, um, and um, so we supported the call for a, for an immediate ceasefire. That was what we, we were supporting. That going to the Security Council, then the US vetoed it. It was a statement around um, a humanitarian ceasefire from memory over the weekend, and um, we were supportive of that statement. It was a Security Council, uh, it was up to the Security Council decision, uh, and it wasn't a General Assembly uh, resolution. It was a, a, state, you know, a, a statement. That sure, was but to have haven't, wasn't, isn't New Zealand's position that we're not quite at the stage of calling for an immediate ceasefire, that we've, we're saying there needed to be steps taken? So is that not well, a exactly different position? position. Uh, that's exactly our position, and the text reflected that position. But what we're saying is, um, you know, we do, you know, we want to see a cessation of hostilities in the region. It's appalling uh, for all of us to watch. It's, it's traumatising and distressing for everyone seeing the images that are taking place there. But in order for a ceasefire to happen, you actually have to have some things happen. Corinth uh, first is it has to cover all the ge- geography area of conflict. Two, both sides have to want to have a ceasefire. And three, you have to have a pathway for peace as you go forward. And so what we're saying is you know, we want to urgently see those steps being realised and taken so that we can get and secure a ceasefire. Uh, a good start would be extending the humanitarian truce, which is broken down. Uh, and obviously um, we've got countries in the region like uh, Qatar, like Egypt, like the US, uh, that are really putting influence on the players to make sure that um, they get to a, to a better place and okay. get into that position. Okay, a couple of other quick questions. Another, it seems as though an apparent leak, second leak, this time on a Treasury document. I'm not sure if it was a Cabinet document uh, concerning regulatory impact statements and the ability for Treasury to have some discretion as to whether they apply them. 
Uh, well, firstly, are you concerned about the leak? No, not at all. Um, it's not a leak coming out of Cabinet. Uh, there's two issues here. One is, um, you would have seen last week, um, we had a, a, an FPA uh, repeal paper that went to Cabinet, um, and you, immediately we had MB um, of its own volition um, proactively uh, start a, uh, an investigation as to how that leak could have happened. And then the second thing actually wasn't a Cabinet paper per se. What it was is saying, on our 100-day plan, when we're repealing government legislation, there is no need for a, a regulatory impact statement um, because it's just it's it's just too much churn and it's activity and it's wasted time. Uh, and you, result, I guess the point is here, and we'll, and we'll be, is that you can give an assurance that when you actually are put, progressing important pieces of your own legislation, they will have regulatory impact statements. Absolutely. So the position that I don't think is that different from what I saw Labor do in 2017, but essentially we're saying, look, it just makes no sense having all the bureaucracy churning on a piece of uh, process that actually doesn't make mm. any sense when we're going to be repealing that legislation. Okay. And so, who's leaking? So who, who, who's leaking against you so early? I mean, it just seems extraordinary well, that you're facing... That information was given to Treasury. That was the position of the government, um, which was given to Treasury. Treasury would have briefed you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of public servants about... Uh, that director from the government about that there is no need for regulatory impact statements on legislation being repealed. So what are you saying, that it's a public servant? Uh, Well, definitely not a cabinet member, put it that way. Okay, uh, final question. COVID vaccines. There was a report over the weekend that seemed to suggest that a decision hadn't been made over whether future COVID vaccines would be free for the entire population. It might be targeted at at, at risk groups. Are you at the point where the cost... Uh, is so high that you do have to look at that? Well, it's just that it's currently funded by Pharmac, as I understand it. Um, Pharmac funding is actually due to come to an end in June next year. This has been one of the frustrations with the government is creating time-limited funding or what are called fiscal cliffs. Uh, The reality is we have to continue to fund Pharmac. People rely on those drugs. You can't just say you're going to turn it off on June next year, which is the the last government's approach or plan. So everything's currently under consideration. That's something that Shane Ritchie will be working through. Um, And we'll make sure that... um, So it's possible possible that next winter, say, uh, those who aren't in vulnerable groups may, like the flu, still have to pay for a COVID vaccine. That's possible. Uh, look, I just say to you, we'll work our way through it, but we're just the first major problem we've got is that the government wasn't planning to fund Pharmac beyond June next year, which is quite outrageous, I would have put to you. Um, we are working our way through that to make sure that we can get uh, flu vaccines, Pharmac vaccines, uh, all of those other, uh, and other... Oh, I appreciate all of that, but you, you, I just want to be clear, you can't rule that out, that possibility that we you may have to pay. A, a healthy person who's not at risk might have to pay for a COVID vaccine next year. Uh, again, those are all considerations that, in fairness to Shane Retty, new in the role 10 days in, looking at a whole range of challenges across healthcare. Farm Act not being funded beyond June next year, another one. Um, he'll work his way through that and work out the best way to, to deliver the services we need to people. Christopher Luxon, Prime Minister, thank you very much for your time.